Peter chapter 3 verse 21a baptismal regeneration you may say well what in the world is that just hold tight we're going to make sure lord willing that everything is clear god's work of salvation according to a hardline liberal is summed up in the following quote what a hardline liberal I'm not talking about a liberal politically theologically a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That's what liberal theology teaches. So we want to focus, as always, on the gospel, on the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's been said that the minister of the gospel must not be afraid of conflict with the wisdom of the world. Gregory the Great said, listen to what he said, God first gathered the unlearned and afterwards philosophers. Nor has he taught fishermen by orators, but has subdued orators by fishermen. Here's what I want to say to you this morning. Listen up. As believers living in a fallen world, we often do not see the beauty of the gospel and the importance of the gospel and the beauty of baptism. We need help sometimes. As we live in this fallen world, we don't see the beauty and importance of the gospel and the gospel picture, which is baptism and, and the Lord's Supper, sometimes we need help by focusing on distortions of these things so that we can once again really appreciate the beauty and importance of the Word and that which symbolizes the Word. Strange as it may seem, sometimes it helps us to focus on distortions well this morning we're going to spend a good bit of time saying talking about baptismal regeneration say what is it want to think about baptism we're not not so much thinking about believers baptism versus infant baptism that's not our number one thing we are a baptist church and so those things certainly come come through we want to plainly look at the word of god and see Jesus Christ. And so I have two main headings this morning. Two main headings. And the first is just very simple. It's 1 Peter 3.21. Heading number one. Are you there? Or if you don't have a Bible, come talk to us uh, after the service. We'll get you a Bible. You can just listen for now. But I hope everyone who does is looking. And don't take my word for it. Look in the Word of God. So heading number one, here in our uh, book of 1 Peter that we just started looking at, first of all, what does it say? What does it say? And if you streamline it there in 1 Peter 
if you were to streamline it, what it says is baptism now saves you. That's what it says. Baptism now saves you. Well, that's what it says. What does it say in context? Look at the word with me. What does it say in context? Verse 21 says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now go back up to verse 13. 1 Peter 3.13 Peter writes to these suffering, to these persecuted believers, and he says, now, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Verse 17, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now mark this, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That's one of the key verses on what's called substitutionary atonement. Verse 18, and then verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, verse 20, now saves you. So we see, first of all, in this first heading, first heading again, very simply, is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. We see what does it say? It says baptism now saves you. That's not me playing with the text. That's just streamlining it. That's what it says. And then, of course, we have to notice what it says in context. But number two, the second heading this morning, the second heading is this. It's the title of our sermon, Baptismal Regeneration. Now, really, it's not that hard. This is the second heading. If you just think about those words, baptismal regeneration, it might immediately become clearer. Baptism, I think for most of us, I think for most of us, we picture baptism as someone going down into the water, plunged beneath the water, dipped, submerged, immersed, and then brought back up out of the water. So we, we all have a picture of baptism, and then baptismal regeneration it's just that's a, just another word for being born again for the new birth 
So baptismal regeneration, if you don't know what that means, means that it's the belief, it's, the, it's, not, it's not our belief, as we'll see this morning, it's the belief that a person is saved, made right with God, born again, uh, through the very act of baptism, so like going under the water and coming out, that is what saves a person. Or sprinkling a, a baby, sprinkling an infant, that is what saves a person. Or we need to be fair, we must be truthful and honest for many, even today, they would say, no, 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 that's not what we believe. That's not what we believe. We believe that it, it completes salvation. That there's faith and that there's repentance and that baptism is essential. It's, it's not all of salvation, but it, it's, a, it's a part of salvation. Why would we be thinking about this? I've already, I've already said that it's not our church belief. But we're thinking about this because it's a way to help us think about baptism. It's a way, as I said, for us to think about a distortion so that we will treasure the real thing. So that we will see Christ and see clearly what the Word does and does not teach. This has been a problem in the church for hundreds of years. It's still a problem today. But the point is not to... Uh, as he said there in verse 15, have a lack of gentleness and just to barrage others, but for us to grow positively as we think about the gospel. So, dear friends, the year was 1864. I want to do a little bit more history than normal today. The year was 1864. The day was June 5, June the 5th, Sunday morning. The city was London, and it was the Metropolitan Tabernacle. The name of the very large, what we would today probably call a mega church, where the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, preached in London to hundreds and thousands in the 19th century. And there was this huge controversy. Spurgeon is in England. What's the church in England? What's well, not Catholic? which is what you think of if you know anything about baptismal regeneration, you might, if you know anything, you might think about the Roman Catholic Church, which in some ways would seem to teach that just the act of baptism removes original sin as the infant is sprinkled and the, the baby is regenerated, is born again. Well, England was not Catholic. England was Protestant, the Church of England was Protestant, but Spurgeon told his publishers, as his sermons were being published all around the world, he said, I'm about to ruin the, the publishing industry of my sermons. I'm just letting you know, guys, I've got to do this. I feel compelled to do this, he says, but it's going to ruin, it's going to ruin the publication of my sermons. Quite the contrary. Sermon, uh, Spurgeon preached on baptismal regeneration. It's uh, regarded by many people as his most famous sermon ever. June the 5th, 1864. In today's time, when newspapers circulate a million copies a day, 
writes Dr. Tim White, it may seem a small thing to say that a sermon had at once a circulation of a quarter of a million, but in those days, and for a sermon in any day, such a sale is phenomenal. The Spurgeon was wrong. This sermon was preached. It was printed. It flew off the presses. And a lot of people got really mad in England, in the Church of England, which taught and practiced baptismal regeneration. Spurgeon preached from this text near the very end of the Gospel of Mark. Listen, he preached from the text, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believes not shall be damned. The sermon that he preached then is 16 pages long. It went longer than he normally did. It probably occupied more than an hour in delivery. It is well worth reading today, he says, this brother. I agree with him. It's well worth reading today. You could find it easily. On the day following, the students of the college united with Mr. Spurgeon in spending the whole afternoon in prayer for a blessing on the sermon when it should be printed. Baptismal regeneration. Well, let me ask a question. Is there any support in Scripture? Where do those who, who teach this, these denominations, whether it be uh, Roman Catholic or, or, or pretty much Lutherans or Church of England, others today, well, certainly they would want to, to appeal to the Bible. Yes, they would. And the question is, do, do we find this in the Bible? Do the Scriptures teach this, that baptism saves or that baptism is a part of our salvation? And the answer that I would give is no and yes. No, period. Yes, so it seems. So it may seem. That's important, right? So it may seem. So we have this passage, of course. 1 Peter 3, 21. Baptism now saves you. Could it be any more plain? Or... Or John chapter 3, you don't have to turn there. Do you know John chapter 3? Do you know one of the most famous Bible verses? John 3, 16. Hear it again. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever is baptized... No, right? Not trying to be funny. For... For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son so that whoever believes in Him may not perish but have eternal life. That's important, right? John 3.16 Well, again, there is appeal made to Scripture. There absolutely is. Many people, uh, we don't say that they have bad motives. We say that their doctrine is dead wrong. But we say they may have good motives and they're still dead wrong. They say, well, look at John chapter 3, verse 5. Listen to this. John 3, 5. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And they say, well, it says you've got to be born of water there in John chapter 3, verse 5. 
Unfortunately, the whole passage is talking about spirit, 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 and water and spirit can refer back as symbols to prophets like the prophet Ezekiel. And of course, where we see it at its most plain, as I've already said in John chapter 316 or John 316, he doesn't say that whoever is baptized should not perish. It's been pointed out that Jesus Christ came not primarily as a social worker. He came primarily as a preacher of the gospel. Jesus Christ came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. And if the greatest preacher the world has ever known who came with the specific motive to save sinners, if his plan of action was to preach the gospel and not primarily to baptize, then why would we say that baptism saves? So they, they look really at John 3, 5, which, pardon the pun, just won't hold water. Titus 3, 5. Don't, you don't have to turn there. Titus 3, 5. John 3, 5. Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And again, it was said, well, look there, just like John 3, 5, Titus 3, 5, the washing of regeneration. And I personally, unlike others, I just don't see baptism in either one of those texts. I don't see baptism in Titus 3, 5. I see a beautiful picture of what God sovereignly does by the Holy Spirit in what we call regeneration, the new birth, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Does this matter? It does matter. It does matter. Would you keep your place there in 1 Peter chapter 3? Keep your place and turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. we want to give the benefit of the doubt and at least see what they say. And we've seen John 3, 5, Titus 3, 5. Uh, many people, I just asked you to turn to Acts 16, but many people, by the way, Acts 2.38, which says, Acts 2.38, have you, have you ever been familiar with this one? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Peter said, you don't, don't turn there. Peter said in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's another one later on in the book of Acts that seems like, it seems, it seems like maybe baptism is somehow part of salvation, Acts 22, 16. Now why do you wait, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name? But in between Acts 2, listen, in between Acts 2 and Acts 22, there are no fewer than four baptisms. And in every one of those instances, it's plain that they're saved by faith. Well, let's be clear. By grace, through faith. 
Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone. We're saved by Jesus Christ, by his work on the cross, not by anything we do, not by being baptized, not by church membership. We're saved ultimately through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. By Jesus Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone. And I'll say it again, in between Acts 2, which seems like it might give help to baptismal regeneration, and Acts 22, which seems like it, in between those, there's four instances. Let's just very briefly notice two of them in Acts 16. Lydia. Not Lydia Burroughs. Lydia here from the book of Acts. Acts 16, 11. Beautiful. Acts 16, 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Sermothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, Acts 16, 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. By the way, there it is right there. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And, and verse 15, yes, yes, baptism comes very quickly. That's not a problem for our view. And I'll just say, I, without arrogance, I'd say our view is the biblical view. The, the fact that baptism comes so quickly in all of these passages just shows, listen to me, uh, the importance of baptism. I would say, as the, as the grace of God, the believer's first act of Christian obedience, baptism is not unimportant. It's so important that the symbol can often be used to, to almost act like the thing that it symbolizes. You know, when we say Romans chapter 10, confess with your mouth, there's some people who think, you know, you, you have to literally confess with your mouth. And Romans 10 does say confess with your mouth. And I'm drawing a parallel here. The Bible does say repent and be baptized. But listen, you're not saved by confessing with your mouth. You're saved if you would be saved today by the grace of God through repenting of your sin and placing your faith in Jesus Christ. It's only this. It's one coin and two sides of one coin. You know, boys and girls, one coin and there's heads and tails. Conversion, conversion is one coin, one side being repentance, the other side being faith. And sometimes we say confess with your mouth as a way of speaking. And sometimes we say be baptized as a way of speaking. It comes so close. It was so important to them. In verse 15 again, Acts 16, 15. After she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. It's pretty clear that the Lord opened her heart 
she was not saved through her baptism. Her baptism symbolized the grace of God and her faith in Jesus Christ. The Philippian jailer, same chapter. The Philippian jailer, Acts 16, verse 30. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Are you looking at this? Acts 16, 31. They said, what must I do to be saved? And they said, get, get baptized. It's not what it says. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And yes, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Dear friend, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not ultimately about confessing with your mouth. It's about turning from your sin toward God in Christ. And then, after that, following the Lord in baptism. We see it clearly here. You know, again, let me just say this, that one of the passages that is appealed to most frequently, again, is Acts 2.38, uh, when Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And we say, well, Peter said... Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Why aren't we more startled that he doesn't say believe? He says repent and be baptized. He leaves out faith, which is just to say that some, listen to me, stay with me here, listen, this is important. Sometimes the Bible says repent and it doesn't say believe. Many times the Bible says believe and it doesn't say repent. A few times it says, a few times it says repent and be baptized. But it never, it never says just be baptized. It's always repent and believe. Repent and believe. Let me get back to Spurgeon for just a moment. So it's 1864. It's June the 5th. Spurgeon drops a bombshell in this sermon on baptismal regeneration. Because one of the things that he's doing is he's using some sarcasm. But he's saying, I have no ill will towards anybody. He's, Spurgeon was a preacher of the gospel. He says, I'm concerned that millions and millions of people are going to hell because not just infant baptism, but baptismal regeneration. I'm concerned that millions of people are going to hell because they were sprinkled in the church of England. He says it's going on everywhere. He said, he said it's just like Roman Catholicism is having a new day in England. And then he really makes people mad because he says, how can these preachers be in the Church of England? Many of them say, well, we actually don't believe in baptismal regeneration. He says, then what are you doing? Why have you agreed to take a salary from the Church of England and you've said, we agree with this, but you actually don't? He said, wouldn't it be the worst thing in the world for a preacher of the gospel to lie like that and to take a salary even though they don't believe their own church's articles of faith. And so he makes all these people mad. And he says this. Let me give you just a few things. You can read it later. 
The most important thing is not Spurgeon's sermon this morning, but the word. Let me give you a few quotes from his sermon. I find that the great error which we have to contend with throughout England is one in direct opposition to my text, well known to you as the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. We will confront this with the, with the assertion that baptism without faith saves no one. That's his main point. That's his main point. Baptism without faith saves no one. The text says, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. But whether a man be baptized or not, it asserts that he that believes not shall be damned. So that, listen, so that baptism does not save the unbeliever. No, it does not in any degree exempt him from the common doom of all the ungodly. He may have baptism or he may not have baptism. But if he does not believe, he shall in any case most surely be damned. Let him be baptized by immersion or sprinkling in his infancy or in his adult age. If he is not led to put his trust in Jesus Christ, if he remains an unbeliever, then this terrible doom is pronounced upon him. He that believes not shall be damned. Well, if we had time, he goes into this. Not really an imaginary scenario. He says he basically paints a picture for his hearers and he says, come with me into a service of the Church of England. Come with me to the baptismal font. Virgin was a funny guy. He took this baptismal font. You know, they don't have a dunking tank. Uh, they sprinkled infants. And so they just had a little thing that looks like a bird bath. And he took one of them and he put it in his garden it as a birdbath. He said it was the spoils of victory. Um, but he said, he, he would say in one instance, let me paint a picture for you. Come with me into the church, to the font in the Church of England. And let's just suppose, he said, let's just suppose that the minister is actually a very godly man. Let's just suppose, for the sake of argument, he says, that the parents, that the sponsors are very godly people. Well, then the prayer book, the, the book, the doctrine of the Church of England requires them to answer on behalf of the infant, I do renounce the devil and all his works. The parents are saying with their voice, because the infant can't speak, the parents are saying, as though with the voice of the infant, I renounce the works of the devil. Spurgeon says this, what can be the influence of such preaching as this upon our beloved England? There's a little thing going on these days here. It's called Christian nationalism. I'm not going to get into that. There's a debate about Christian nationalism, at the very least, we should be able to say that love of country and love for one's own people is not evil at all. Now, what can be the influence of such preaching as this upon our beloved England, upon my dear and blessed country? What but the worst of ills? I loved her not, but loved myself most. I might be silent here. But because I love England, I cannot and dare not. And having soon to render an account before my God, whose servant I hope I am, I must free myself from this evil as well as from every other, or else on my head may be the doom of souls. He makes clear, he said, I'm not talking in this sermon about infant baptism versus believer's baptism. He says... I want people to know God through Jesus Christ. And that happens because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary. 
because Jesus died as the sinner's substitute. Friend, do you here today know that you're a sinner in need, not first of all of baptism, but in need of the grace and mercy of God demonstrated, demonstrated on the cross? Spurgeon says, we want John Knox back again. Do not talk to me of mild and gentle men, of soft manners and squeamish words. We want the fiery Knox. We want Luther to tell men the truth unmistakably in homely phrase. The velvet has got into our ministers' mouths of late, but we must unrobe ourselves of soft raiment, and truth must be spoken and nothing but truth. For all of all lies which have dragged millions down to hell, I look upon this as being the one one of the most atrocious, that in a Protestant church there should be found those who swear that baptism saves the soul. Call a man a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a dissenter or a churchman. That doesn't matter to me. If he says that baptism saves the soul, out with him, out with him. He states what God never taught, what the Bible never laid down, and what ought never to be maintained by man. What is it? Baptismal regeneration. Baptism and the new birth brought together. Either in the Catholic way that the act itself, sprinkling the baby or immersing the adult, or in other ways that we see even today, baptism completes salvation. But the Bible teaches sola fide, faith alone. What do you do with the books of Romans and Galatians and the teaching of Jesus in places like Luke chapter 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector? This man and not the other went down to his house justified. Baptism is a, it actually is a massively important and beautiful symbol. We see it in the Great Commission where Jesus calls us the church not first of all individuals, but the church to go into all the world and to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. But the New Testament and the Bible, as I said, Romans and Galatians, all the time, he that believes, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Number one, 1 Peter 3.21. Second heading, baptismal regeneration. Finally, we return to number one. Finally, we return to number one back at 1 Peter chapter 3. I'd ask you to do that with me if you could. First Peter 3.21, on its face, on the surface, on its face, on the surface, seems to say baptism saves you because that's what it says. But it's as though, isn't it, that Peter catches himself in 1 Peter 3.21. It's as though he catches himself. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not, 
not as a removal of dirt from the body. Not the act itself. But, because the, throw, the whole thrust here is not negative, but positive, right? Spurgeon is for Christ, for the gospel. And woe to us if there is serious error, especially as it strikes against the gospel, if we remain silent. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what saves us? What saves us? Answer, Jesus Christ. Answer, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Answer, verse 18. Hear the gospel, dear friend. Hear the gospel in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. He might bring us to God. Friend, have you ever been brought to God? You can't bring yourself to God. You can't go to God on your own. Christ and Christ alone can bring you to God. And the way that He does that is not baptism, but is through dying on the cross, propitiating our sin, bearing the wrath of God, Christ brings us to God through His cross. Look at it again and listen. Verse 18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's you, friend. That's me. That He might bring us to God. We see in verses 18 through 20 His crucifixion. We see His resurrection. We see in verse 22 His ascension. We even see His present reign, which we might call His session. All of this, it's Christ who saves. It's the resurrection of Christ. It's the cross of Christ. It's the grace of God. Listen to the words of R.C. Sproul. Listen. And we don't even agree with R.C. Sproul, but we agree with him against baptismal regeneration. Listen. In a word, without Christ, His death, His resurrection, the imputation of His righteousness to us, and the imputation of our guilt to Him on the cross. Without those things, baptism would be utterly worthless. If I thought for one second that baptism put people in a state of justification, I would stand on a corner with a fire hose and baptize as many people as I could. I do not think that is the point being made here in 1 Peter. The water that saved Noah and his family saved them because they put their trust in the promises of God. I will just say... Personally, I do believe the Baptist view of this whole thing is really ultimately the only answer to something so problematic as baptismal regeneration. Because what Peter's saying here in verse 21, he's saying if you hold somebody underwater, they will die. Baptism, Romans chapter 6, and the whole New Testament is the submersion of a believer and only a believer. Baptism is the submersion of a believer in the name of the triune God, under the water, which pictures the flood. It corresponds to Noah and the judgment that God brought on the world through water. And in the same way, baptism is beautiful and it's meaningful and it's massively important. If you've never been baptized as a believer, you should not be partaking of the Lord's Supper. You should obey the Lord immediately and be baptized. Peter is saying here, if you hold somebody underwater, 
they will die. But Jesus has been raised. Jesus has been raised and we are raised with him. We are buried with him in a watery grave. We are raised with him to newness of life. And that corresponds to a little wee little picture back then, Noah and the flood, which pointed to something much greater. People died in the flood. The wrath of God is real. You remember that quote with which we began? The liberal theologian says, there's a kingdom without judgment. There's a Christ without a cross. There's a God without wrath coming to help men without sin. That's not our gospel. That's not our gospel. God is holy, and you and I are not. He is creator, and we are creature. He died on the cross not as some mere example, but to propitiate the very wrath of God. Baptism pictures the gospel, union with Christ. Romans chapter 6. Say, man, can you draw this to a close? I will. Just in the news this week, unfortunately, I don't know if you like the Chiefs or not. I don't know if you like sports or not. doesn't matter. Super Bowl happened last Sunday, and in the news this week, they had their parade as the sports teams do when they win a big sporting event. And as you've heard in the news, there was a shooting at the aftermath of the parade for the Super Bowl parade for the Kansas City Chiefs. And what is Peter saying here in verses 18 through 22? There's a lot more confusion here that we could look at. In 18 through 22, James is going to handle all your questions. Think about it like this. Put aside the tragedy that we just read about in the news and just think about what normally happens, although we are reminded we live in a fallen world. The sports team wins. They've been bruised up. They've been beaten in the, in the victory. They've achieved the victory maybe a day or two ago. They got beat up. They got bruises to show for it. They achieved the victory in the past, and now they, they've got some bus that's open on top, and they, and they go through the town. And the, and the players are up on the bus celebrating the victory. Maybe there's some people from the opposing team there as well watching the parade. Maybe there's some opponents of that team looking on as well as they go. And maybe this particular parade happens to be in Washington, D.C., and they end up at the White House, at the seat of power. After their victory has already been achieved, after it's very evident because of the bumps and bruises, they've been paraded through the town, even in the face of opponents and many people who cheered for them. Listen to this and we're done. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. I'm simply reading the text. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Verse 22, Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him. Peter said, oh, you suffering, persecuted believers, know this, Christ has won the victory. Christ has won the victory. The victory has been accomplished. The wounds are visible for all to see. He's been paraded even though we don't fully understand this. He proclaimed to the spirits in prison. He has arrived at the seat of power. The victory of Christ is achieved for us who believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your ordinances. 
baptism and the Lord's Supper. We thank you that these are pictures of the gospel. The Lord help us according to your word. Help us to refute error. Help us to proclaim the truth out of love for you and out of love for our fellow man. Forgive us, Lord, for we fail daily. We pray that you would fill us with your love through the Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.